the audiobook Speakeasy. I'm Rich Miller, and I'm your host here at the Speakeasy. This is where you'll meet narrators, coaches, engineers, and other audiobook professionals, as well as some listeners who will be sharing what they look for in a good audiobook. If you're interested in audiobook production, you've come to the right place. Tonight's Speakeasy Chat is being brought to you by Squeaky Cheese Productions on the Cutting Wedge. You can find them on the web at squeakycheeseproductions.com. Tonight's chat is also brought to you by David Stever's Raven Rain, book three in the Johnny Della Rosa thriller series. A hard-charging, hard-boiled detective who enjoys beautiful women and top-shelf bourbon, Johnny Della Rosa's past collides with his future when hired to stop a blackmail scheme against a local celebrity, former pro football star turned car dealer Stan Shelton. He's pressed into a fourth and long, with the clock running out, as his journey to find the truth and clear his client spirals into an abyss of deceit and death. Noir for the 21st Century, Raven Rain, now available on audio, narrated by Bill Lord. And now, come on in, grab a drink, pull up a chair, and join us for a friendly chat about audiobooks. My guest tonight is an audiobook narrator and the owner of audiobook production company Mosaic Audio. Amy Rubinate, thanks for joining me in the speakeasy tonight. Hi, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. I know that we had a little bit of a difficulty scheduling this. Uh, you are an incredibly busy person, and uh, so I'm really <laughs> glad that we could finally make it work out. Yes, I'm a little hard to pin down, and you were very patient with me. At a <laughs> I'm, I'm so happy to have this like moment of downtime with you uh, to be able to really talk. Thanks yeah, no, that's that's great. And um, so, <laughs> I, I look forward to getting into all the different the different ways that you are busy because you are quite busy. <laughs> yeah, got a lot going on. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Well, so uh, so thanks for coming into the speakeasy since it's a speakeasy. What are you drinking tonight, Amy? <laughs> My usual hot water. <laughs> hot water. You know, you I sound the you, booth and that's all I can have. Yeah. <laughs> you sound like a narrator. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I got to tell you that's my mouth noise secret. Everybody's all like dealing with the, um, you know, the green apple and this and that throat spray. And I'm like, hot water. That is that's the it. Huh? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I have, there have been a lot of guests here in the speakeasy who are drinking tea or hot water and, uh, and a lot of times just plain water as well. So, uh, so that's fine. I know uh, I'm very unexciting. I should be having a martini, but I, I have to finish my master's thesis tonight. So <laughs> no, 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 that's quite, Oh, I really look forward to hearing about that. Uh, it's quite all right. The, no drinks are prohibited here in the speakeasy, <laughs> alcoholic or non-alcoholic. I am actually uh, having a drink tonight that does have alcohol in it, however. Uh, something new to me, actually. I, I was not a, a lover of Negronis for quite some time. I had my first Negroni probably two or three years ago because a good friend of mine likes them. And I ended up chucking half of it down the drain because I hated it so much. But, you know, tastes change. And so probably about three or four months ago, I thought, I should try this again. And I did. And I thought, that's not half bad. And then the second one I had that night, I thought, this is actually pretty good. So now I'm trying all the different variations. And uh, a recent guest here in the Speakeasy had a Mezcal Negroni, which I look forward to trying. But in the meantime, I, I heard somebody else on a podcast who is in the spirits industry talk about a rum Negroni. And so I thought, that That's sounds really interesting. <laughs> What's that? That's just wrong. <laughs> it's not. It's actually really good. Really? It's, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I love it. And in fact, I'm having it with uh, Foursquare, which is a, a cask strength rum, uh, 100, 120 proof. And um, it is really good. I've, I've actually come to like some really good high-end rums lately. 
And uh, a recent project was that I actually made my own DIY spiced rum. And I did a taste test against Captain Morgan and hands down, it won. I was so glad I found this recipe. It's really pretty simple. Only takes a couple of days, few ingredients, and uh, and then you've got your own spiced rum. So I did not use that for this one. I think that that with the Campari might be eh, a little bit much, but uh, but no, this this rum Negroni is great. I'm I'm really really I'm happy with it. Looking up the recipe online as you talk, and I came upon the botanist Bianco Negroni, which looks amazing. Have you had botanist gin? It's really good. I have botanist is really good. Yeah. Now my first uh, Negroni was at Kohl's. Um, downtown, uh, downtown LA. Um, they are like a contender for, um, originator of, um, the best of French dip sandwiches. Um, I tend to prefer, yeah, I, I tend to prefer Philippe's, um, which is really the classic and it's such a like great old school place. It's like peanut shells on the floor. They all oh, yeah. <laughs> for 10 cents, you know what I mean? That kind of thing. It's like a really great place, but Kohl's is a more of a sit down place. And, um, and uh, so I had a French dip and a Negroni and I was like, oh, <laughs> the lights came on and it's something I've enjoyed since then. But um, but you have to get it right. I mean, I think I tend to enjoy them more when it's at a high end uh, restaurant or bar than at a dive bar. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know what the ingredient shift is but if it's done poorly it's a really bad drink <laughs> my guess my guess would be that at a cheaper place they're probably just pouring the alcohol in based on time which you can you can get fairly accurate in how much you pour but I think that for a negroni you have to be really accurate and so so it's got to be equal parts and I think that if you stray outside of that just a little bit it's going to change it substantially so my guess is that that's probably why it's better is that they probably actually measured yeah they're paying attention <laughs> yeah yeah. So, well, I would recommend this. So if you like a Negroni, I would say try this. And and of course, the other kind of much more well-known Negroni variation is a Boulevardier, which is uh, bourbon or rye instead of instead of gin. Um, but I'm I'm a fan now of this. I'm I'm really glad that that I recognize that sometimes tastes change and you should yeah. try things again a few years later because I'm I'm telling you that first one I had, I really hated it. And uh, I I don't throw alcohol away. And when I dump something <laughs> down the drain, it's pretty serious. So I'm I'm really glad I tried it again. And uh, now I'm kind of a fan. Now I'm now I want to try all the variations. Good. Like it took me about 20 years not to be a Cosmo girl. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had to find my other options you know <laughs> yeah well if you want to uh, i've actually got a recipe for a, a riff on a cosmo that i made for my wife that she loves with uh, vanilla vodka instead of instead of lemon vodka and uh something called liquor 43 instead of triple sec and uh it, it it's a different so yeah yeah anyway anyway amy thank you so much for coming in cheers Cheers. Um, so I know that you're in LA at this point, unless I'm badly mistaken. You you are well, still in LA, right? Mm -hmm. Still in LA. Is that where you're from originally, or uh, are you a transplant? No, I am from Weaverville, California, um, 12 hours north of LA, in the pine trees of Northern California. Um, just it's just south of uh, of Oregon, the Oregon border, maybe two hours south, and uh, in between I-5 and the coast. And it's in the Shasta Trinity National Forest. And in fact, my house growing up backed up against um, the national forest. We had a, a, a quarter, quarter acre of land. And on the other side of the ditch that 
<laughs> brought fresh water to our gardens was the national forest. And so we just hiked to our heart's content. I was a totally feral forest girl. And that's uh, great. That's, yeah, it's I, beautiful. I, up there. My and my best friend and I would tromp through the woods all the time and make up stories and tree forts and uh, get that's... into all kinds of trouble. It's really beautiful up there. The uh, I haven't actually been to Trinity, but um, I have been up to uh, what's the uh, Shasta, I guess. Yeah, uh, that's beautiful too. Yeah, Mount yeah, Shasta National Forest I, Link. Yeah, they just blur right into each other. Yeah, and I've been to Mendocino, and um, yeah. it's mm -hmm. it's just it's beautiful up there. So that's really cool. And then you ended up from there. You went to the big yeah, city. Yeah, there... all over the place. I it took me a few years to graduate from college because I was just I just kind of didn't know which way to turn. I knew I wanted to be a performer, but I didn't quite know where to go. I ended up um, in St. Louis for a year. Then I went to junior college in Santa Rosa. And then I um, went to San Francisco State. And while I was there, I was getting a speech communication degree with an um, with an emphasis in oral interpretation of literature. Interesting. Little did I know that would come in handy. And so yeah. I was participating um, in the speech team. I was doing seven or eight, you know, speeches. It's basically it's like acting with a book in your hand or narrating on stage. Um, mm -hmm. And I was part of the forensics team, the non-debate side. And so I I compete and get medals or trophies or whatever. It was pretty much every weekend of about four years of college. Wow. So it was the training for what I ended up doing. But at that point, I decided that with my degree, I was going to become a cabaret singer for a living. You can imagine how that turned out. But I had a really good time. I My um, my final project for my um, my degree was... Um, doing a cabaret in a planetary in the planetarium at school all like moon and stars songs and um nice. and a lot of performing at the plush room and um uh, coconut grove and just all these great old places that are no longer there and um realized that cabaret was a dying art form and I remember just mourning that, like, how do I get ahead? And there, and my friends were like, there's no ahead to get. <laughs> this is not a viable career option. And one of my friends said something really telling that has really, that was very kind of a big moment for me. She said, stop beating your head against a wall. Find a way to go around it. Find another way to use your voice. And um, that's great. That's, that sounds like great yeah. succinct advice. Huh. It, and I, I really hewed to it for a long time. I was like, okay, what's another way to use my voice? And I had a friend who was an, um, a voiceover producer and her husband was like a jingle writer and they both wrote um, ad copy and um, she wrote songs and I ended up being their admin. And I was like, hey, I'll be your admin if you'll let me audition for everything that might be appropriate for me and help me find my way into voiceover. That's cool. And nice barter so, situation there. Yeah. So I played a lot of um, teenagers and waitresses for like for um, commercials. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then I fell into um, at one point. Well, I'm not sure how far you want to get into this. I could go on and on about voiceover i was the voice of yeah Chad. no actually I'm, i i love talking about other genres of voiceover and, and and how people came to audiobooks because um it was a you know, there, 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 there sure. are so many there are so many different ways to get into the audiobook world some people start yeah. that way and then move out of it to go into other genres some people start in other genres and find themselves in audiobooks so i'm always interested to hear about how people got there well, and I felt very lucky to have started out um, almost as a really a character actor for animation kind of stuff um, in my voiceover career because it really helped me when I got into audiobooks to do character voices. So that was not alien to me. That was my wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. um, so I ended up doing um, 
writing scripts and being um, an associate producer for a kids TV show that was filmed out of Cal State Hayward, which is CSU East Bay now. And I, um, it just was like luck. They just handed me the job. They're like, you're a writer, go fix our show. So how funny. When, <laughs> yeah. when was this? When, when, what oh, year was this? God, this must've been around the t- 2001 maybe so not not too long ago but uh, yeah. <laughs> but, but a little while <laughs> i'm pretty well, old uh, but yeah, no no, so- no i'm just I'm, i was just thinking because i actually took a class at um at chabot college which is very close to yeah, um Cal, Cal State. oh so you're a norcal guy um i spent many years there yeah i think uh 20 23 years in in uh, san leandro and los gatos and the santa cruz mountains and you know different places in the bay area but um but i was thinking but that was way back in i think that was 89 or 90 so quite quite a bit before that fairly in the same sort of decade range yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) but then i ended up um i was an event coordinator for a while and um then i was like i can't take this one more day i have to be an actor and um, I went and took a class from Elaine Clark at Voice One. And oh, sure, yeah. I just took a private from her. And I was like, look, I have all this experience. By then I had voiced so many commercials and I'd done so much um, character work on the TV show. And um, and I said, I, I don't know, like, do I get an agent? Where do I fit? What do I do with all these skills and experience and this talent? But I don't know really quite how to package it. And so um, she had me take a class that weekend and within... A couple of days I got an agent with stars in San Francisco and then oh, that's great. I was with stars for a while. You were? Oh yeah. Was, yeah, they're great. Yeah. I'm still with them actually. But but Oh they, no kidding. Wow. Yeah. She and my friend Desiree Goyette, who was um the one that I had worked for um that got me started, they both suggested sort of simultaneously that I reach out to um leapfrog toys in mm-hmm. Emerville. And so I, for some reason, I sat on this package, you know, it was back in the day when you sent out a CD. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I remember those days. <laughs> and I must have sat on that for three months. And then one day I woke up and I was like, it's time. <laughs> and I sent it <laughs> and um, they called me, I think the next day I was like, how did the mail get there so fast? But they called me and asked me to audition for the part of Tad, which was a leading role um, in their games and toys division. Um, There's this frog family. It was like Tad, Leap and Lily. And so for about 10 years, I played um, Tad for their plush toys. And, wow, that's fantastic. You know, Don't you love those jobs that just keep oh. giving? Oh, I was there twice a week. It paid my rent. It was great. Wow. And then they, I'd be there and they'd be like, hey, can you do the voice of a three-year-old girl duck? And I'd be like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's so from fantastic. there, I went into a job that um, where I started casting for a toy company. And so I spent a year as a casting director for a toy company. And then we ended up moving to LA um, and I really transitioned pretty quickly into audiobooks. Um, but it gave me some of the building blocks of what I do now as a producer. So all that kind of, you can see the, the little threads and pieces that led to what I'm doing now, you know? <laughs> I, it is, I'm, I'm a little surprised that you moved to LA and you got really quickly into audiobooks. I would think that with that background, that's not where you would have ended up. You would have gone straight into as much commercial and character work as you could well, find. Well, my friend Rachel always says, you go to the part of the industry that wants you, that has, you go through, you walk through the open door. And mm-hmm. that was, it just happened. Like I, I hit LA and I did, um, oh God, was it Starcraft game? And I did a couple of commercials, but I was with a, an agent who really very quickly signed me into like middle-aged mom stuff, but that was not my forte. Mm. And so, um, right. fort, depending which dictionary you're going with. 
I can never like say a word without stopping up. myself now because we look things up so much. So, um, that, that comes up about, I think, once every three months in the groups that I'm in, and it always ends up being this hundred comment thread. <laughs> but yeah, but so, but also simultaneously. So I, I was, um, you know, working actor in the Bay Area, and that means I lived in Marin, and I would drive to, I would do video game work in San Jose, I would do um, the toy work in Emeryville or San Carlos, and sometimes they'd send me to Vallejo. So I'd be driving like hours and hours and hours and hours, and I was so miserable, and I, I was so angry because like the traffic sucked. I, I contend that the Bay Area has worse traffic than LA. The Angelinas just complain about it more. <laughs> <laughs> Well, my experience when I moved up to the Bay Area from 1989, there was something on the ballot for some change to Interstate 280. And I don't even oh, remember a, what it was. It's like the most beautiful even, freeway right. ever. <laughs> it, it is. There was some change that was proposed right where it, it meets up in the city with 101 or 80 or I, I don't even remember. Anyway, there was something on the ballot. And there were these, you know, just angry factions on both sides. And one of the sides was basically their argument was we don't want our traffic to be like yeah having lived in in the bay area for 23 years i can i can absolutely say that by the time i left the traffic in the bay area was absolutely as bad as the traffic was in la when i left la i don't know how they compare now i will say that when i've flown into ontario sometimes it's stop and go all the way in where where I want to go, and so I I do it know that it's bad in LA. Like I'm in um like the Sherman Oaks Van Nuys area, and so there's a lot of escape routes to wherever I want to go. I think I've, oh right I've heard yeah tell from some of my friends that like just getting through Hollywood, getting ten blocks in Hollywood can take them an hour in rush hour. So mm -hmm. I think it's just it's sort of lucky where I ended up. But at that yeah. time on the road really informed me about audiobooks because I probably listened to seriously, and I'm not even kidding about this, I counted once like a thousand audiobooks before I even entered the business. And one wow. day I was like, why am I a great foundation? This? Yeah, like, wait a minute, I have all these skills and I love it. I mean, I like all the greats that, you know, like Grover and, and Scott Brick and Cassandra Campbell and um, Ros Lander and Simon Vance. I mean, they like saved my soul. Mm -hmm. as I did all that driving and it was just like it, to the point where I wanted to get in the car I mean I remember like listening to Belcanto sitting um sitting in my car and like getting takeout and eating it in my car and like like spending like, getting home and staying in my car for another hour because you know, <laughs> that's where my cd player was right uh, it's like, so it's so funny because that's not the first time i've heard that people actually people staying staying where they are because they want to finish what they're listening to oh yeah one of my favorites <laughs> was um oh i cannot remember the name of it it was a retelling of snow white um hmm. by bruce coville's uh publishing company, full cast audio. And I actually, we lived in San Jose at the time. And I, um, I remember driving almost all the way up to the observatory because I, <laughs> I needed to stay in my car and finish the rest of the book. Wow. Up in Mount <laughs> Hamilton. Yeah. Wow. That's a road that you got to pay attention to, too. I'd be a little yeah, scared somebody like, paying too much attention driving. to it. I'll go up. Yeah. <laughs> I ended up taking a Pat Fraley class and, um, uh, came down to LA and then I did the Scott Brick contest. Scott had, I can't remember what it was like, he had hit a thousand audiobooks or he'd been doing it 10 years. I think it was, he was doing it 10 years and he did this thing called share the experience and he totally changed my life. He, um, he 
invited, um, you know, however many wanted to contribute, um, uh, any new narrators to submit an audition. And um, then he had a bunch of, you know, um, publishers and producers and stuff um, decide the winner. And so then the winner got a contract at Penguin Random House, I think it was. And I, Wow, that's fantastic. And so yeah. this was before you had actually started narrating? Yeah. And I mean, I'd done some like, like eBooks for a platform for, um, uh, for leapfrog, but not audiobooks. And mm -hmm. th that was actually one of the stipulations. You couldn't have, have an audiobook on the market. And so, um, I tied for third with Elizabeth Wiley and it really launched my career. And I, um, what, one of the things that I did though, that I think is really helpful for new people is that there were, I think it's like 435 people ended up auditioning it took a lot longer for them to process the whole thing because they were expecting you know 50 100 people and it was like crazy so I think that the strategy that I used was actually quite helpful and it's something that I still encourage people to do when they're getting into audio um, audiobooks is to brand themselves like my whole thing as I say is like tell people how to cast you and then when you're in <laughs> expand their perception of you as a voice and, mm -hmm. you know, and as actors, we're so tempted to be like, I want to do everything, you know? And it's like, you know, you see all the time, like, you know, the America's sweetheart actress, who's so good at chick lit or no, sorry, chick flicks and stuff and beloved mm -hmm. trying to do seri more serious, like um, period pieces. And it does, it falls flat. Right. Mm -hmm. There's, I, I believe that for everyone, there's a sweet spot that we are all generalists and can do many things, but there's that sweet spot where you walk into the booth or you walk onto the stage or you walk onto a movie set and you're like, Oh, I know this. I'm home. Okay, let me do this thing that I sparkle at, you know, yeah. I, for my, for my money as a casting director, I want to know the thing you sparkle at. And then I can learn a couple more things about you, or I can take a chance on you and say, oh no, you could be the villain so easily. But I also want to hire you for that sweet spot. I want to hire you for the best thing that you do in the world. And so at that time it was children's voices. And so I, um, I thought I'm going to get lost in a sea of middle-aged women doing romance. And so I, what do I do that nobody else does? What do I do that few people are doing well that where I shine? And so I did, um, it was like a middle grade book, um, you know, where it's like, and then I went to his house and, you know, that kind of mm -hmm. thing. Yeah. And, oh my God, you know, that kind of thing. And, um, and it stood out. So um, it was a real turning point, but it also was something that sort of locked in my theory of how to position yourself in the industry and market and brand yourself. And I remember just playing that up, playing that up, playing that up. Every email I ever sent anyone, it would be like, um, and I specialize in children's voices or I specialize in children's fiction or, you know, and I've been doing a lot of picture books and middle grade for blah, blah, blah. And it was always like branding, 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 branding. And I remember working for Tantor for the first time. And I think it was, I can't remember if it was James Cookson or one of, one of the guys who does the, you know, their production, um, vetting my studio and saying to me, oh, you're the girl who does young adult stuff. <laughs> and, and I was like, this guy would have no way of knowing that. I was like, it worked. It worked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My branding worked. And and then at one point I was doing a director diagnostic at um, APAC. And um, I was with, I think it was Karen Jakonsky. Well, she was with Harper at the time. Now she's with Penguin Random House. And I had done, you know, some really successful series with her, the selection series by Kira Cass and things like that. And I've been doing a lot of young adult for them. And I remember Grover Gardner said to me, because um, I'd done a lot for him as well. He said, you know, Amy, you want to be doing this full time. And 
you don't innately have that little bitty baby voice. You know, you can do it, but that's not, that's not, you know, there's going to be people for whom that is their bread and butter. Mm -hmm. But for you, if you want to be doing this full time, you have to use your full range. And there's at that time, it was like 2013. He's like, there's not enough young adult to go around to make a living. Um, So you've got to expand your range. So I, um, I had the range, but I didn't have the marketing or branding, right? So I so, so let me stop you for a second. How, yeah. When when you got that advice from him, that that sounds like wonderful advice to get from somebody who knows this industry. And, and yet, you'd spent so, so much, much time yeah. working on this particular <laughs> brand. What was your initial reaction when you heard that? Damn. <laughs> That's what I was but wondering. That's what I want to do. That's what I'm good at. That's what I love. But then, I mean, I'm very, I'm a, I always say I'm not the best narrator in the world, but I'm the best hustler. <laughs> so I, it took me about 10 seconds before I was like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to master this. And, you know, like I, now, that, so, now that I've got this great advice from somebody yeah. who knows what they're talking about. Okay. I'll get over exactly. the dam and, and move forward. So, yeah. I've always had so much respect for him. And I had done a director diagnostic with him that really kind of turned the lights on for me. And he had given me my first two, I think it was my first two um, earphones books and award, you know, earphones award books. And he'd really kind of helped foster my career. And so it, um, I was like, okay. And so then I had director diagnostic pretty shortly thereafter, I think. And this must have happened. The advice must have been given at like um, a mixer or something. So I was with Karen Chikonsky at this director diagnostic. And I said, hey, we've done all these kids books together. Um, would you consider seeing me as a woman? She goes, okay, what do you got? And I brought Bel Canto. <laughs> And she said, that's my favorite book. And I was like, me too. And so it was just like one of those kind of kismet things. And then she gave me the missing James M. Kane book that was um, found, discovered, and um, produced posthumously. And um, it got reviewed in the New York Times. So all of these wow. things to, they, they just sort of launched me. Right. Um, and, and oh, Scott also followed up. He really made good on it. I only came in I tied for third in his contest and I, he has never said this, but I believe to this day that he probably put in a good word for me with, um, with Dan Musselman and was like, come on, hook her up. Yeah. (laughs) And so he gave me my first, um, my first job. And then shortly thereafter, um, well, there were a bunch of moments of kismet. (laughs) Um, Well, that, that, that's, that's cool. It's, I don't think that that's bad. I mean, what, what I think of about most acting careers is that it's a combination of innate talent, learned skills, and luck. I mean, some, but you some, make some, your own luck. I don't I, think it's luck. I, I truly don't. So I, think it's so I, I agree with you. And yet it feels that way sometimes. And so I, I do agree that, um, you know, I, I don't believe in any kind of uh, spiritual karma, but I do believe in the, the type of karma where what you do ends up coming back to you simply because of the way that you've been doing things. Um, that's that's going to come back. And so I think that some of it is luck. And you're right. A lot of that, maybe all of it, is created because of the things that you've done along the way. Well, I don't even think of it as karma. I think of it as like preparation and listening. So like, okay, I'll give you one more example, and then we can get off my early career, which is um, I went to APAC. So my first big APAC, that same time when they announced the win or the third place I um you know nobody knew me and I showed up and there were there was nothing on the agenda that said I could ever get a chance to perform 
And so I brought five scripts with me and I was like, I'll find, I'll find a chance. And, <laughs> and then everybody was going to that, whatever that thing is. I can never remember the name of it where the narrators read aloud. And I was like, Oh yeah. Listener's heard, lounge. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I don't need that. I've already heard these people narrate a hundred books each, you know, like I'm, I don't need to listen to them do it on stage. And, and it, concurrently there was, um, or concurrently <laughs> there was a, uh, um, uh, a panel on finding, picking the right mic for you. And I was like, that one will get me some mic time in front of some people. So mm. I, I went to that one and there was only like 20 people in the room because everyone was at listeners lounge. And I was like, ha, ha. And, then, <laughs> <laughs> and it was a David Shin. David Shin was like, um, Hey, does anybody want to try this mic? And I was like, boom. <laughs> and, my arm shot up. and he was like, damn, we forgot to bring scripts. And I was like, that's okay. I have five. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's fantastic. That, that is, I totally yeah. agree. That's, that's and, preparation. Yeah. And Laura Grafton scouted me. She leaned over my shoulder. She was sitting behind me and she gave me her card and she said, I would love to hire you to do young adult books. And she gave me my second, fourth, 15th, you know, book and had, was pivotal in my career. So for all of this stuff, I would say to young, I mean, you didn't actually ask the question, but I'm, I'm, I'm pitching my ideas. Um, oh, you know, no, that's, that's <laughs> half of why, more than half of why I do this podcast <laughs> is to find out from the people who have been in this industry for a long time. What works? What doesn't? What do yeah. you recommend? I mean, different things are going to work for different people, but hearing from a variety of people who are who are far up the ladder is cannot be anything but beneficial. Well, and this is the thing. So I, you know, you could listen to my story and you could say, um, I'll never forget when I wanted to be a cabaret singer, going to see Uta Lemper, this amazing, famous German chanteuse in at the Symphony Hall in San Francisco. They were doing a pops concert. And uh, I remember opening the program and seeing her bio and being like, I don't know, is it, I'm going to totally over exaggerate this, but it was like, and her latest painting was just shown at the Louvre and someone just wrote a movie for her to star in. And she's on a world tour of her cabaret. And, um, you know, it was like, and she writes children's books. I don't know what it was. Like yeah. it, was, but it was a bunch of stuff like that. And I remember reading it and being like, oh, it is possible. (laughs) This is proof. And I remember taking it to a friend of mine who granted had been around the block a lot. She was about 20 years older than me and had been, you know, a little beaten down by the industry, but I took it to her and I was like, look, look, it's proof. And she was like, all I see is this is depressing because I'm not doing that. And I was like, no, no, no. It means you can do that. So similarly, I would say, when listening to anybody new, when listening to this podcast or any of these um, sort of origin stories is you look at these origin stories and you think, well, that's not for me. Scott's not doing a contest this year or, you know, blah, blah, blah. But what you, what you do is you take the elements that are, that are usable for anyone, right? Mm -hmm. Branding yourself, um, being prepared for opportunity, um, following up on opportunity, um, you know, showing up with this willingness to jump in, uh, doing your research, because that thousand books I listened to, that was homework, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> and so all of those things are things that anybody can use. And then their origin story will be totally different than mine, but it, the, but the strategies are the same. Mm-hmm. And then the final thing I would say is, you know, there's something um, in the religion I grew up in, it's like, you know, listening to God or listening to that still small voice. Um, if you taken today, I might use terminology like the universe will tell you when the time is right, you know, (laughs) I might go a little more generalist. um, But, but it's also listening to your intuition, right? So when I sent that 
CD out to LeapFrog, why did I wait three months? And then why did I send it on the very day they were looking to cast this new role? Nobody knows. But I, I listened to this almost like impulse in my body that was like, go, 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 you know, and, and there were a number of moments in my life that have been like that, where I'm just like listening. And I don't know, you know, it could be God, it could be energy, it could just be my own personal intuition that is connected to nothing. Nobody knows, right? Mm -hmm. But one of the things I would suggest is listen to whatever that still small voice (laughs) um, translates for you as like, heed its urging. Mm -hmm. And that thing has been probably the most pivotal thing that I've done in any, any endeavor. That's, that's good to hear. I, um, I, I think that that's different for everybody. And, uh, I, I can say for myself that if I just quiet down, it, it's very easy to look at a situation and say, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Do I do this? Do I do that? I don't know what to do. But if you just stop, and you just relax. And I know that that's really hard to do sometimes, but if you just stop and relax and think critically, think, you know, slowly, sometimes it works for me. And, uh, and so I think it's different for everybody, but, um, that's, that's kind of what I hear when I hear you saying that for me, that's what works for me. Yeah. And for me, it's almost divorcing myself from critical thinking and, listening to the impulses of my heart and my soul. Mm-hmm. And my body. I, I could totally see how that, depending on your personality and, and your background and everything, I can totally see how that would work for some people. For me, it's, it's not that, but, but like I said, different, different for everybody, but yeah. if you just slow down and relax and, and trust yourself a little, and, and if it means trusting outside of yourself too, that's fine. But um, but that's, that's great. It's so good to hear that, uh, that all of those things happened. And I think that you're right. I think a lot of it is preparation. Um, even if you don't know what's going to come of that preparation, you look at it and you go, what's the best thing I can do? I can have five scripts ready just in case. And, uh, and that worked. And these are the, everything you do is transferable in some way. My mom always says, these are transferable skills, Amy. Look, you used every transferable skill to get where you are now. She, was, <laughs> <laughs> um, she worked in, um, Oh God, now I'm not, the word is not coming to my head, but, um, uh, career development. And, um, she went back at late in life and got like me and got her master's and, um, became a career counselor, um, at the high school level. And she, um, and also worked for, um, some career service companies, but, um, she, she always looks at my life and my work with a sort of strategic eye and says, look how this one thing you did when you were 20, (laughs) (laughs) look how the leadership skills you developed as an event coordinator um, enabled you to then become a producer, Mm -hmm. you know, wouldn't have had that confidence or that skill set or, you know, any of that leadership capacity to become a casting director and then a producer. And so I really agree with her on that, that like, there's so many little things that you have in life that like, sometimes I'll, I don't really teach, but I, you know, sometimes moonlight as a guest teacher when people invite me. And, um, I remember I like to go through the room at the beginning and be like, so what is it that's unique about you? What's interesting. And so many times it's, not their acting skills, but they might say, oh, I lived in 17 different countries by the time I was 10 because mm-hmm. my father was in the military. And I'd be like, uh, so you can do a lot of accents, huh? And they'd be like, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll be like, okay, this, this is important, you know. Yeah, <laughs> and then yeah. I'll, I'll teach them how to work that into conversation as part of their elevator pitch or casual conversation at mixers and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
So yeah, no, that's that's great. So at this point, when it comes to narration, because I know that you are still narrating, we'll we'll get into <laughs> mosaic in a minute, but I know that you are still narrating as well. Um, do you feel like you you still have a niche or in young oh, adult absolutely. or? Well, no, my niche has changed, um, or actually, as I like to say, niche uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> has changed. That's um, another one of those conversations. Depending <laughs> if you're being French or American today. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> I can never get that inner critic of pronunciation out of my head. Oh, let's, let's check it on one look, you know, um, but um, my husband's so tired of that. Um, no, for narration, my niche changed. Um, I gained a lot of weight. I gained, like, I call it the audiobook 80. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> and that's being generous. Uh, but I, uh, I get, I was always tiny and athletic. And then I sat for like, you know, nine to 12 hours a day. I was one of the early adopters of high volumes of work. Mm. You see it now all the time, people doing 60, 80, hundred books a year. Back mm. then I was like kind of out there alone doing 60 and I'm, a, I'm, um, not the most organized person in the world and it's very hard to keep me in my seat. So mm -hmm. um, I, it would take me nine to 12 hours to do a three hour book on my, you know, if I was self engineering. Right. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, in the studio I could pound, but you know, at home I could, I could do my three hours a day or sometimes four, but it would take me forever. So, um, so I gained a lot of weight <laughs> and, and um, what was my point about that? Oh, right. So the second I gained a lot of weight, people stopped hiring me for middle grade or for a young adult cold, like boom, it was over. Hmm. And, and that was interesting to me as a, a perceptual thing. Like, wow, they, where's the imagination? Like, and where is the understanding of what I've done? Yeah. Like my voice hasn't changed, but you know, my voice has changed a little bit because I had to, I mean, I couldn't go into that high play. I had to, you know, more for the women's stuff. I had to place it a little bit lower and a little bit more, um, you know, when you talk to me, it's very like freewheeling, but when I'm narrating, you know, it's a little more um, precise, but, mm -hmm. um, but Laura Grafton, bless her. And now um, Dave from um, Brilliance kept me on the, um, the Judy Moody series, Judy Moody and Stink. So I do that. I do probably four of those a year and it's so wonderful and it makes my heart sing. <laughs> and cool. it's just, a joyful, joyful work. And that is, um, middle grade. Um, but other than that, no, I'm doing adult stuff, but, oh wait, I do picture books. I did a picture book about Elizabeth Warren for dreamscape, but now my niche is, um, cozy mysteries with witches baking and solving mysteries with comedic familiars set in the South. <laughs> I love the fact that genres are so specific now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, it's hysterical. basically co cozy mysteries, sweet romance, um, and actually sometimes those sort of, um, uh, romantic suspense, like mm. do some, you know, so that's pretty much where, where, where my skills lie, but there's also, so this is an interesting concept too. When Rachel Fulginetti, um, who we came up together and are very close friends and she lives down the street. So we talk all the time and she always talks about that, like go through the open door. There's an area of the industry that's going to invite you in, go walk through that door. Okay. So there's an aspect of that that people forget, which is what does the audience want from you? And I have a friend who all she ever wanted to do is literary fiction, but all anybody wanted to hear her do was romance. It, there's something about me. I have a very casual, I mean, I'm not this, I'm not this like freewheeling when I'm narrating, obviously, but <laughs> um, there's a casualness to my persona and my delivery that lends itself well to chick lit basically, which is kind of what, you know, the the cozies and the sweets are right mm -hmm. um and 
for, for a while, people kept casting me in these like, you know, girl who was in a very dark place, who was grungy and goth and like hated the world. And I just like, I did my best. (laughs) (laughs) The audience hated me and um, (laughs) hated me. And I, but they loved me. Like if you, you could compare my reviews for that stuff and the, the, you know, the stuff I'm doing now, you could sort by date and look at the kind of stuff that people love me and the people don't like me. And I finally said to one of my publishers after I'm on, I'm over 300 books now. I finally, maybe book 250. I was like, guys, they don't like me in this stuff. Like, can you just cast me in the sweets and cozies? I love it. You love it. The audience loves it. Why are we wasting our time doing other stuff? And they were like, okay, I think you've earned it. But that was a total, that could have backfired on me. That's, I, yeah, I was going to ask you about that because that's a difficult conversation to have. And and people people often ask, I see this saying, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. What can I do about it? And uh, a, a I advise like, that to most people. I mean, part of it is at that point I'd become, I'd kind of gone over to the production side and um, I, I tended to know these people better and have like, like meaningful working relationships with them as people rather than as entities who, um, you know, cast a wand over my head and gave me a book. <laughs> you know, they mm-hmm. became real to me as people. And so I had you know, a more complex relationship with them. So I could kind of tell them the truth about it. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but also I had other work so I could be like, well, if they don't want to do that, I guess I can just turn down the grungy stuff and not work as much in narration, but they, they went for it because they saw the value of what I was saying. I and mean, I, it was a good point, right? Mm-hmm. You never want to cast me where the audience doesn't want me. You know? <laughs> right. I mean, they, they want to do books that do well. And for a yeah. book to do well, it needs good reviews. And if it's going to get crappy reviews, yeah. then they're not going to want that. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. And that was, a, that's another thing though. That was a listener versus professional review thing. So the professional reviewers loved me and the darker stuff and the literary stuff. The keep the, the casual listener didn't. Um, so that was interesting. I mean, the reviewers liked me on both sides, whatever genre I was doing. I, I, you know, uniformly got, um, good professional reviews but mm-hmm. um but not so much with the listener so they had a very particular thing that they liked me to do yeah. oh and, and christian fiction i do a lot of christian fiction which i absolutely love because i like i like to live in a happy place i like i mean i've spent my working life trying to create the utopia that i want to live in for myself and for others and that lends itself to the whole production conversation mm-hmm. and those kind of books allow me to live in a happy place you know there's not a lot of people getting their heads chopped off in Christian fiction. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't expect so anyway. (laughs) You know, werewolves. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Well, that's cool. I'm glad that that conversation worked out well. Uh, Is there anything at this point that you absolutely wouldn't narrate? I mean, if somebody came to you and said, you know, here's all the money in the world. uh, We want you to narrate this book. uh, You know, what, what do you say? I, I find that uh, the more difficult the world gets, the more trouble I have staying in the booth for very dark stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am doing a series now that I used a pseudonym for, um, and it was it took me many days to get through it. It should have taken about five days. So it was um, just people like... Um, processing their childhood trauma and killing the people who perpetrated it upon them and um, Mm. 
it, it was good writing and it was a good book, but I was like, oh, it's just, this is hard, you know? So I think I probably in retrospect, you know, maybe wouldn't have taken on that series, but I needed the money. It was mm-hmm. the beginning of the pandemic, you know, like, yeah, I, and so, big, yeah, big there's like the art, and commerce, art and commerce, they never can be totally divorced. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was a, that was a kind of a watershed moment or, or a watershed, um, kind of a long moment, but a lot of people, including myself, were kind of like going, well, this might change things without really knowing how it was going to change oh, anything. Yeah. yeah. I mean, well, my production company, we lost... I don't know, like 70 jobs that we had on deck in one day. Wow. Yeah. We had a whole host. So uh, should I maybe give you a background of that? Do do you want to? Yeah, this is this is you a great time to go into to go the... to go into the production. <laughs> I know what side. I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, um, I definitely want to hear about Mosaic and and how that came about. Yeah. Um, should we back up then? And then remind me to talk about the pandemic though, because it's again there's a there's a story there about resourcefulness and strate- strategy and hustle. There's a my way through used all those things and perhaps yeah no let's let let's back up and and when when did Mosaic come along? Okay, so I I was pretty burned out and pretty exhausted from doing sixty books a year by myself and um, can see how that would happen. Yeah, and and also because it took me longer than the average person, so it was a lot of hours and you know not many days off. So um, I mean the product was good. I wasn't compromised in that way, just in efficiency, right? Mm-hmm. So. Um, uh, God, it was 2014, I think. Um, I started a publishing company and, um, it, I, again, trying to create the world I wanted to live in. I was being offered a ton of horror and a ton of, um, I don't know, just like teenage dystopian, but like not the triumphant kind, the really, really, really grungy kind. And mm-hmm. I was like, you know, like teenagers ripping each other from limb to limb with their teeth, you know? And, and like, I'm like, this is, this is for 12 year olds. And, and, uh, I, it got to the point, my husband actually had started engineering me at that point. And he actually walked out of a session was like, you have to stop taking these books. And my sister had helped. Wow. Me. Yeah. There was some foreign language stuff and she speaks German and um, some French. And so she was helping prep the book. And she was like, I, I will never take one of these jobs again <laughs> for 12 year olds. Right. Oh. So I would, and I was like, I can't take this anymore. And it was on the cusp of um, on the heels, I think of, um, you know, 50 shades of gray. I was being offered. So I'd been offered largely literary fiction or worthy commercial fiction. And suddenly I was being offered crap all the time. And it wasn't that my career had changed. I'd gotten more awards and more reviews and my profile was very high at that point and as a narrator. And um, but but the the industry had changed and the workload had changed and there were more people in the industry and there were more, you know, there was um, you know, more people vying for those same jobs and there was a ton of other stuff. And my my um my focus had always been on volume. So I was like, I'll take it, I'll take it. But at first I had sort of put off some of these books and then I was like okay I'll take it I'll take it and then I was like ooh that was a strategic error I should maybe I should have continued turning that stuff down and sure I would have been a little hungry for a while but I I could have kept just doing the books that were great mm-hmm. I don't know how that would have played out but at that time you know um my husband had gotten laid off and we needed the money so I made yeah. him my engineer he was he used to work for ABC so he he knew all that stuff and you know I made him my engineer and we just like pounded jobs and so um, but l- I look back and I think that was a big turning point in my narration career where things kind of shifted in, in a way that wasn't pleasant for me. 
So I was like, just desperately wanting to, and then there was a lot of stuff that weren't a lot of, um, choices in the industry that were not positive for the narrator. And so I kind of went mission-based and I was like, I was like, I'm going to start a publishing company and it's going to be positive books, not Christian books, but like, you know, if a book is very difficult, it will still have a redemptive ending or, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and my, my whole thought was if I give the narrator a great week of narration, the audience is going to have a great week of listening. Mm -hmm. Like if this is something where a narrator goes, Oh, thank God, Amy. Oh man. I'm so happy and relieved to be able to do this book. The audience is going to feel the same way, right? They'll feel it. They'll, they, the product will be great. Everybody will have a good time. It'll be good books. And so, I mean, it was a lot of commercial books, but worthy stuff, you know, a lot Mm -hmm. of um, women's fiction and children's books. So I did that, but it was not as it was it was tougher it was a critical success we got a lot of press we got great reviews it was tougher um financially it, i realized that in it, once i went over to the publishing side and became management people started talking to me and they'd say they'd take me aside and be like amy why are you buying all these books they're great books but you've got to buy the one book that's going to carry your whole product line for the whole you know your whole catalog for the year and I'd be like I don't have deep enough pockets to bid on that book mm-hmm. <laughs> and they'd be like well, that's how you do it that one book is going to carry all the other books so I I've I've kind of kept basically so that that business turned into more of a labor of love so it's still up and running but it's you know I'm doing a couple books a year now and um you know all the books are doing well it's all great but it's that became not as financially viable for me, you know, to make a living at because you, you kind of have to have some infrastructure there. If you, if I was doing the traditional publishing model, not a, this is pre ACX or pre big ACX where, you know, it wasn't like I was going out and saying to authors like, Hey, pay me to produce your book. I was buying the rights. Mm -hmm. So, so that became like, it's been great. And I'm very proud of the work that we do, but it became more of a sideline for me. So I was, um, I was, I became a, um, an engineer and director over here at Mosaic in the booth that I am currently sitting in. And uh, Zach Harris had started Mosaic as a production house. And um, he had previously been with um, Blackstone. And when Blackstone um, got rid of their LA studios, he said, oh, hey, I can keep this going. And they said, okay. And he built a booth from by hand um, in his K-Town apartment third floor wow. <laughs> and was um yeah was like producing and engineering and directing out of there then he moved to Van Nuys and in the back house of the house I now then moved into had um built two studios and um was running two you know two booths simultaneously from there and um I was I remember I was directing Aaron Bennett and who has become a dear friend and um he said, I'm selling the business. I'm, you know, I'm moving to San Francisco. I'm going to become a computer programmer. <laughs> I was like, wow, yeah. no kidding. Yeah. And, and he was an uber genius. Like he came with all kinds of efficiencies that I still use today. He taught himself computer programming in like 12 weeks and then yeah, had a huge career. And, you know, he's, he's doing well. That's uh, awesome. But, yeah. He's very, he was a real innovator. Um, which was great for me when I bought the business. But I remember saying to Aaron, like, I want to do it. I think I can do it. I'm a producer now. I can do it. You know, and I have all the skills. I I want to do it. And she was like, how do we make it happen? <laughs> so like I went out and got coffee. And by the time I got back, I had to come up with a, a way to do it. And I pitched it to him and he was like, great. 
it's yours. Now, for the past like six months, I had been his director for all of his author and celebrity jobs. And he'd have huge celebrities here. It wasn't even a commercial studio at that point, you know, in a big building. It was like behind his house and he'd have like Stacey Keach and, you know, all these people back here. I remember, wow, that's great. That's great. Yeah, I remember that, sitting that at lunch could... by the pool with like uh, the mom from Happy, uh, Happy Days. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, not I, Happy I... Days. Shoot. No, I directed her later. Hang on. It was um, Florence. No, no, no. Who was the one who was in Carousel? Her name is uh, Shirley. Uh, yes. Uh, Shirley Jones. Uh, Jones. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I remember sitting by the pool between sessions. Like I was in one booth and Shirley Jones was in the other. <laughs> and that's we were fan- like, that's fantastic. Yeah. So this guy has a, a business where he gets to interact with all these people and he loves what he's doing. And then he's saying, I can't do it anymore. And then he goes on to do, to have another, you know, very successful career. And then you yeah. get to step in and do that kind of stuff instead. Yeah, he's really brilliant. I mean, but I remember he left because it was so hard and um, so thankless. And he was like, I'm making okay money, but the the time that it takes to make that money, it's not worth it to me. And I was like, he's like, you're going to work harder than you've ever worked in your life. And I was like, I'm already working harder than I've ever worked in my life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so he was not wrong. It is the hardest I've ever worked in my life. Like I, I've worked 18 to 20 hour days for three years. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, like talking about the audiobook 80, it became the audiobook a hundred. I didn't leave that <laughs> you know? And that is what it took to make this business a success. And and I we went from two little booths in the back house to that those aren't even really in they're not, I mean I I record in them now, but they're not in in activity anymore. Um, we ended up with eight um commercial studios around LA in the, you know, the the valley and um like really nice plush tricked out high-end studios and um uh we went from i think it was like the height right before the pandemic it was like i think i had 165 jobs i did the first year and six was like 630 last year so yeah fantastic so that's grown a lot and then the pandemic And so you want to go back to the pandemic. So, so how has that changed things? I know that when I saw you on a, when I saw you on a panel at APAC, I believe it was 2019, might've been 2018. I'm not sure. Um, You were, you were talking about the fact that all of the recording for Mosaic at that point was done in studio. You, I, I believe that you were not hiring anybody for remote recording. So, um, tell me about how that may have changed as well as other things may have changed since March of this year. Well, just to back up just a couple of steps from that, that model was based on my utopian ideals, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, one of the things that I wanted to do is I knew where people weren't being like paid correctly. And I knew where where the I knew where the holes in the industry were that were of a dis of disservice to the people doing the work. And so one of the things that I set out to do was to do it in a more egalitarian way. And so I was actually the first to go to the union and say, I want a contract and then to give some concessions to the actors that I knew they needed. And so that I think created a little bit of a shift and a model for them to follow for. um, And I'm super proud of that. Like, I feel like that was groundbreaking and I contributed. No kidding. I can feel 
proud about that, you know, and that that created a model that they say that they follow to this day for um, the indies that come to them, you know, wanting a union contract. So that that felt like a good shift. Yeah. And I wanted to pay my guys well and I wanted to treat them well. And I wanted us to all work with this idea of if we care about these books as much or even sometimes more than the publishers do, uh, we're going to make great art you know, everybody's going to have a good time, a good experience. And so that has been the ideal to which we have always striven, strived, striven, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> striven. <laughs> and so, um, uh, but to do that, right. Um, to do that, in my opinion, we had to control every aspect of production. We couldn't leave it to chance. Uh, in the beginning, I, I, um, there was, you know, I inherited a little bit, some different stuff and I quickly, killed that so I was like you know I'd get a book that was recorded in someone's bedroom in New York and you'd have city buses going through mm, yeah Nobody's can't stopped. have that oh no this is not happening yeah. so I basically was like we're doing it in studio and that is what we're doing and but but I also built it up so that my engineers are all directors so you know there's varying levels of that right so we have people who are actual directors who've like worked at major publishing houses and are engineering for me so I can hire them as a director or I can hire them or I can use them as a director or I can use them as an engineer who directs mm -hmm. so you have different layers and options for people but you're always getting some kind of direction and somebody who deeply cares about your book and anyone who doesn't care that much is out so it's <laughs> like <laughs> there's no middle ground there mm -hmm. because it's too hard it's too hard if every single person on your team has not captured the mission the vision and the mission for what we're trying to accomplish mm -hmm. but but people sparked to that people understood what we were doing and they liked our work and and the reputation grew and our our work within each company grew and so that's kind of what we were building and what we were doing and that's sort of the why of it and then the methodology of it right so um so then the pandemic hits and it was like <laughs> all this work got canceled immediately like i mean i'm not even kidding like that day and Within like three days, every single narrator who had been a mainstay of our studio, we had, I don't know, it was a very small crew. It was like 30, 35 narrators who were here like every day, you know, and then we had, that was like kind of the core, right? And then we did a lot, a lot of author and celebrity stuff. So it was this like almost like three levels or three lines of work that we were doing, right? You know, the everyday narrator, the author, the celebrity with, you know, a dedicated director. Mm -hmm. So um, I think all but like three narrators in our pool all got home studios immediately. And, <laughs> <laughs> and of course, all the authors who were coming here from all over the United States can't, and or, you know, even local authors were canceled. Mm -hmm. And those books were either um, redistributed to home studio narrators or put on hold. Now, we got some of those jobs back after the pandemic, but it was a, it was a sort of startling. But I had back then I had tremendous, I mean, like, of extremely extremely high overhead because one of my goals was to put everybody in nice studios right mm -hmm. so and to have really fancy studios for the vips so and you can't have Kristen stewart in here in your backyard you know <laughs> well, <laughs> it turns out that you can but i didn't think you should right. so, <laughs> so i had to continue that overhead through the pandemic and so god bless them my narrator my um, my publishers hooked me up i'd be like look guys i have to narrate like a maniac to keep the lights on and they'd be like okay so they really came through for me and I I laid off the team but I kept two guys and we built up um 
a remote record program that I believe is unparalleled. I mean, we're doing stuff that nobody else is doing. We're using existing models. And then like I hired a programmer to um, surprise, guess which one Uh, (laughs) 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 to come up with some solutions for us. And we also, I mean, my main guy, my production manager, Paul Rutan, he spent um, like every minute, like a full-time job between like then and now working on building up this program and supporting us and um we have a fleet of remote record rigs and we have a fleet now of um travel rig travel studios that we drive across town to celebrities (laughs) and leave on their doorsteps and wow yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so we really have the same amount now. We have the same amount of sessions going on every day that we did before, but half of them are remote and half of them are in person. So I'm I'm guessing that the way things are going right now, I mean, depending on when people listen to this, but this is being recorded yeah. at the end of uh-huh. November. Um, everything is going to hell right now uh, in terms of all the numbers and all the data. Do you have any thoughts about what's going to happen with Mosaic in terms of being able to stay open or what you're going to do if you can't stay open? Well, I do. And one of the things that we, one of the things that we have now is the luxury of time and foresight that we didn't have in the spring. And, um, uh, that enabled me, I mean, what we've been doing is, um, yeah, we've been building out. I mean, I'm not kidding you. Like when I say that every week we're reassessing and improving something in our remote record program, it is so complex. And it is so hard to get right. And there's so many moving parts and there's, you know, um, just a lot of random stuff there. And so we're constantly improving it and working on that. So that has never stopped. But what we did is in the last month, we've ramped it up into high gear and in terms of like adding to our fleet and, um, uh, um, creating greater functionality, um, getting the word out about why we're doing this. One of the things that's, that's been tough is those people who stayed open didn't spend that time building out their remote record programs, but they're saying that they have a great remote record program. So part of it for me has been, um, how do I market this? How Mm -hmm. do I, how do I convey that what we're doing is different? and better and working. You know, um, if, if somebody's had, say, a bad experience with a remote record, how, how do I explain to them that that's not what's happening here? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, And so, um, you know, part of that is just outreach and inexperience. They give us one shot, we nail it, they understand what's happening. You know, they have a satisfied celebrity, they know things are working, you mm-hmm. know, that um so right now we're still open because even though the city is closed um if you read in like deadline magazine i believe it is um it's kind of hard to find this information i had to dig i was like what's happening in the entertainment industry what's going on um there's an article about how um the entertainment industry is still open they have an exemption for the entertainment industry um, a legitimate exemption um before people were using the um excuse of um uh broadcast news as a Mm. like quote unquote reason to still be open and have an exemption but this one is an actual legitimate exemption for the entertainment industry so i called jane love at sag after and i was like is this real (laughs) she Mm -hmm. goes yep she is it's real for right now and i was like okay (laughs) so (laughs) um so you know again outreach you know i sent a note to my to my clients telling them what's going on and what we're doing and how we're doing it but here's the thing like as a hypochondriac and as someone who has very bad asthma, um, 
it like really bad, you know, going to the hospital and stuff. I've been pretty scared for myself with this pandemic and for my husband who has pre-existing conditions. And I'm scared for my friends and my community. So one of the things that we did, even when we reopened is that I told people, um, look, would you be willing to try this new remote record system? (laughs) I'm sure you have at least a mic for auditions. We can help you. We'll make the sound good, you know? And so we've, other than people with um, difficult circumstances, like somebody who's on the subway route or I don't know, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, lives next to a police station. I don't know. Um, <laughs> you know, somebody who's living with their grandma on the house is noisy, you know, whatever. Right. Um, other than that, we've really been able to enable a large part of the community uh, to do this work with us. And once they're set up on our system, they're locked into our system. So, um, so that's been good. So, but I mean, if I sound pretty fierce about all of this, I am like, I take this stuff super seriously. Like it's, it's, um, it's an emotional decision for me. You know, how do I, if, if my goal is to bless and benefit people, how do I freaking keep them from dying? And, and I, I, that's the level I think we're at is like, how do we go into battle to protect people and to keep everybody safe? And, and, you know, I don't know all the answers, but we're doing like 100%, 110% of what we can. Well, um, I know so. that this, this whole situation, uh, for some reason, which is um, a little bit hard for me to understand, has become so political. But I'll, and so people are going to have different opinions. I will tell you from my perspective, I am there with you 100%. I'm, I'm one of those people that is just staying away. I'm staying home. I, yeah hardly ever leave I mean, it goes house. beyond opinion it's science like it, it is but unfortunately <laughs> there are a lot of people who have bad opinions about science so i'm i, I don't want to get i don't want to get <laughs> about it but um yeah. i i'm right there with you so i think that yeah. what you've described sounds fantastic um so what about uh new narrators who are interested are you looking for submissions do you normally take submissions is it more of a referral situation are you we've got our narrators and we're done thank you very much what what's your, no, what's your no. situation okay, so there change now because i can hire people from new york to do my remote record we have been remote recording people from england and australia mm, and new york and so um my pool has opened vastly um so and one of the things is i do a lot of casting so i mean we're casting for some pretty major companies and um uh i also do that on on the side as a as a person (laughs) who's Mm -hmm. a director so it's sometimes associated with mosaic it's sometimes not but it doesn't matter like it just goes into the same pool of hey this is amy casting Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know um so actually right now i am really looking for new talent um especially diverse talent um, it's really, and, and I'm part of the, um, the, um, diversity initiative with the APA, um, to not only provide outreach, um, to get diverse voices into the industry, but to also empower and, um, and welcome them into the industry with, um, um tools that they would need. Like, let's say there's somebody who's been, you know, in the, the film world, who's now being, you know, not, there's not as much, even though they're open, there's not as much film production, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, how do we tra- how do we help them transition into the industry and my argument has been right now we need diverse voices more than they need us so it is incumbent upon us to provide resources to help them um you know grow in this industry mm-hmm. so um that's one of the things that we're working on um and uh i mean i tend 
traditionally I've hired narrators who are already, who like I listen to their work, who are on the map, who are um, tried and true. But um, these days, especially with um, a couple of my clients, we, we really have the, the ability to kind of help start people's careers too. And sure, that yeah. is something that's new to me that I'm really excited about. Um, it's like there's the bandwidth there um, to be able to to start from scratch with people. And that's exciting. And sometimes mm-hmm. I also have a client who sends me a lot of people who are, um, they'll be like, Hey, Amy, this person's new. Can you like give them a good start? You know? And so um, Mosaic will um, produce their book and record their book or, or just record. Cause we do sometimes full production. We sometimes just do um, recording, you know, and um, I'll, there'll be an engineer and then I will um, direct. And right now during the pandemic, I always direct from my couch remotely uh, <laughs> or in the studio. Cause you know, in the studio we have like, one person, the engineer in one room and the actor in another room, but you mm-hmm. add in an engineer, and that compromises people's safety. So I'll do that from home. But what they'll do is they'll say like, I need this person to get a good start. So I understand that my job is not only to get them a good book, but to teach, to use it, to teach them skills that they're going to need tr- through the rest of their career. So, you know, um, if I'm teaching them one thing, I'll be like, this is something you're always going to want to do at the end of the chapter button it, you know, this kind of thing, bring it home. Um, or, you know, you can do the chapter heading in a more declamatory manner. That's always fun. And then you drop into your narration voice, you know, the, the little stuff like that. Oh, mm-hmm. you know, bring back, pull back, um, you know, oh, you're, what's your background? Okay. Yeah. Oh, you usually do video games. You have great character voices, pull it back 50%. You're far too, you're too far afield. Use that same placement, <laughs> the same mm-hmm. energy pull it back. So there's a lot of stuff like that that goes on in my directing. And I also use that, you know, when appropriate and where, where appropriate for authors and um, celebrities as well, because it's a very, my, my, uh, my husband says, you should tell people your specialty is, is bringing amateur talent along. And I'm like, nobody wants to be thought of as an amateur, but really it is. (laughs) (laughs) It is a specialty of mine is like, how do you get from, you know, sitting in your chair for the first time in front of a mic, you have to be able to do, and especially with the authors and celebrities, the, the the weight is very high for them. I had a celebrity in here who was like, they're having me do this book and I really have to make it good because the book I really want to do, they're not going to publish unless this one's a big hit. Uh. So I have to get them to professional, high level, award-winning professional narrator level within about a chapter quickly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's a really fun process and it's something I absolutely love and something I, I think, you know, even if I go into more CEO mode and delegate more, which is something that's, you know, I'll, we'll see. I, I love being on the front lines of my business, but you know, as it grows, it's harder and I need to delegate more, but that's something that I'm never really going to give up because it's so rewarding to see the lights come on for people and to watch these people, the stakes are high, man, you know, like you're a celebrity or you're, um, you're a guy with an HGV show, TV show and you're like, you know, famous for building things, but suddenly you have to do an audiobook. You're used, you know, if you're famous and successful at whatever it is you're writing about, you're used to being at the top of your game and you delegate everything else. So you're not good at math, you hire an accountant. You're not right. good at cleaning your house, you hire someone to do it. You're this, you know, whatever it is, they're used to being lauded and on stage and high, high, high level they suddenly come to an audiobook studio and they suck. It, yeah. They're not always, of course, but you sometimes you get people with innate talent, but they come to the audiobook studio and there's a moment of panic where they're like, oh shit, I'm not the best at this. Yeah, I it's just, just a totally different it. format. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I always give them like a speech in the beginning. It's like, okay, here's what you need to expect. <laughs> You're going to make mistakes. That is part of the process. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> we expect it. Don't beat yourself up. Just know, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. No, that's that's great. Well, so uh, so where can people get a hold of you or submit or uh, how how do you how do you like to have people contact you? Oh, okay. They can go to my website, which is um, mosaicaudio.com. And um, there's a like a submission portal there. Um, they're not going to get to me directly. They're going to get to one of my producers. Um, and I probably will not reply. But I we were we will keep you on hand for when we need you. And then I go digging in the emails. I'm like, okay, this guy said he was good at French. I search French, you know, (laughs) (laughs) uh, this guy grew up in Trinidad. Oh, awesome. You know, that kind of thing. So, um, we don't have a database because mostly when I cast, I cast from my own frame of reference and out of my head, it's a creative pursuit for me, Mm -hmm. but you know, it's good for you to tell me everything about yourself, all the little boxes that you check all the little niches that make you hireable. Oh, you spent three summers in France. I need to know you have that French accent, that kind of Mm -hmm. thing. Um, You know, uh, Farsi was spoken in your home growing up and that was your first language. Definitely need to know that. Oh yeah, big deal. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot. um, So anyway, they can reach me through that portal. All right. Cool. Well, so um, everything that you've said has been really good advice. If, If there was one piece of advice that you could give to aspiring narrators out there, what would it be? Can I give three? Oh, I can't <laughs> <laughs> you, can, you can absolutely give okay. three. I just didn't want to take too much you of your just, time. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe it's very hard to leave me speechless, as you've seen. Um, <laughs> know that you're going into this as a professional. Um, men, treat your female counterparts with respect. There's a problem in the industry on that point. Um, treat them as you would like to be treated. Um, uh, in terms of marketing, know who you are and that may not be who you want to be, but who you are vocally and, um, energetically and find that sweet spot and market the hell out of it. And only then pivot. Sounds good. <laughs> I think that was I, like two pieces, but <laughs> I, no, no, no. I, I, I think that's all. Uh, that's all great advice. I know that there is uh, a bit of a, a problem in the industry. I, I will say that I love this industry, and I think that everybody is. Uh, everybody who I've talked to is very helpful and um, supportive. But I know that there is there are various problems in this industry, just like there are in many others when it comes to. Um, gender, background, all kinds of other things. And um, I, I'm happy that I think that this industry is moving forward on a lot of those issues, but I think it still has a ways to go. Yeah, and being aware too that that the producers are paying attention. Um, they're paying attention, they know what's going on. Producers like myself are in multiple forums that maybe we shouldn't be in, but we're because we <laughs> because we wear many hats, we are in different like online forums. We mm-hmm. talk to each other. We talk to each other in a, you know personally, and we know we know who's getting it right and who's easy to work with and who's helpful and who's not a jerk, and we know who uh, who is. <laughs> yeah. And you know, you can be the biggest star in the world or the biggest most popular guy girl in the world, but if you're not if you're not coming into it with good intentions, at some point your workload's going to collapse. And so I just, I really, I, 
boy, I do not want to end on this note, but I do, (laughs) (laughs) but I do think it's important to come in here going, you know, how can I serve? How can I, how can I be at bare minimum, um, a participant in the process, Mm -hmm. you know, and, um, and kind of go from there. I've got a guy, Tim Campbell, you know, I hire him a lot and he, um, he'll be like, Oh, Hey, Amy, Amy, I got a, I got a new date. It's early. Like something changed. Do you want me to do your book early? I'll be like, yeah. (laughs) And and then I'll give him the pickups and he'll text me and he'll be like, is it okay if I take an hour? I'd be like, Tim, you've got three days. (laughs) (laughs) And, and it's funny. I think about that, like his just like generosity and eagerness and caring, like it means so much. And, you know, I know that myself as a narrator, I often fail on that front. But watching the people who are not failing, who are succeeding dramatically, you know, Aaron Bennett, Ronnie Butler, same thing. Like they're just right there. And so many people that are like that. And I think you want to be that guy. I mean, you don't, you know, you don't have to necessarily be the guy who does their pickups in 15 minutes. You know, but <laughs> right, right, right. There's, right. Um, there's um, a generosity of spirit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and no, I, I actually think that's a great note to end on. Um, okay. I, know that, I know that coming into it might not have sounded like it, but I, I think that that's, that's <laughs> great. Have a generosity of spirit. I think that's a great note. <laughs> and so, you know, if you fail, pick yourself up again and do it on the next job. Uh, you know? <laughs> yep. Yep. We're all uh, human. Yeah. Well, Amy, this has been great. Thanks so much for coming in. So aside from Mosaic Audio, are you on uh, social media? You want people to connect there or um, send you an email or uh, anything else? Um, yeah, no, I prefer not to get pitched on social media just because it's, I, I find Facebook um, direct messages just complicated and hard to like track. Um, Email is the best way if you're going to pitch me. I mean, people are welcome to friend me, but if I don't have like a sort of attachment, I've been kind of um, pulling back a little bit on that of, mm-hmm. you know, friending people. I'm like, oh, I know that guy. Then I'll, you know, friend them. I don't always, or if I happen to be just bored and curious and I look up their work or whatever, mm-hmm. I might yeah. friend them. I mean, they're always welcome to friend me, but I think um, I'm kind of pulling back a little bit at this point. Um, but the best way is really to just give me a great pitch um, on um, on email. And um, oh, uh, come to APAC because um, Ronnie Butler and I are doing a panel on um, marketing yourself. And um, we're going to cover a lot of the areas of like how to craft a good email. You know, oh, that's great. Good to yeah. hear. So, so that's going to be the uh, virtual APAC next year? Correct. Yeah. We were going to do it this year, but it got put off. Um, but yeah, I mean, so we have, um, a very similar, um, kind of style and, um, ideas about things and, um, we're, we're really well matched and our approach to kind of, you know, marketing and, and that kind of thing and, um, branding. Um, and so we're gonna, we're gonna kind of share our secrets. Cool. Yeah, no, that sounds great. Sounds great. Which are not All really- right. But you know, <laughs> anyone can use them. <laughs> well, Amy, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming Thank in, you. even though it was it was a little bit difficult. Oh, we never got okay. So real quickly, you went yeah. back to school. Oh my God, yeah. I okay. So after working 18, 20 hour days for three, three and a half years, I got um I ended up bringing my production manager on full time instead of part time or not totally full time, but you know upping his hours and responsibilities and for like a week I had like kind of a sense of freedom and I was like I'm gonna go study to be a children's book writer (laughs) 
it. Which oh is a, my goodness. So, yeah, which is oh, something oh. I've always done and always wanted to do. Tavia Gilbert um, mentioned that she had gotten an MFA in children's writing. And I was like, I'm going to do that. Or, no, sorry, I lie. She got an MFA in, I think it was memoir writing, but the school also offered a children's book writing program. I ended up um, going there for a semester and then switching to a different school. It just was a better um, fit for me. But I ended up at Hamlin University and um, I'm in my third semester. We've just one more to go. This is the hard one. And then I uh, think it's going to be smooth sailing next semester. But I'm studying with this amazing teacher, um, Jean Luen Yang, who is um, a, a very amazing graphic novelist and I'm working on a um, historical graphic novel and it's just been a real joy and um, it has taken so much time and I'm it's so hard to focus during the pandemic I can't even tell you but uh, but I am stumbling through but the the nuggets of wisdom and and the joy that I've taken in the like just that somebody is like asking me to do to read picture books for work or to read graphic (laughs) novels I mean it's just and, and, and that was the difference between the school that I first went to and Hamlin. There was no joy there in the first school. I mean, I think there was for Tavia and her program, but my program was very um, focused on the fact that it was the Harvard of children's book schools. Mm. And I was like, where's the joy? And um, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's why I showed up. You know, I wanted the knowledge, but I also wanted a sense of buoyancy and a sense of hope and a sense of play and reveling in the words and the work and the spirit of it. And, and I, I just found that at Hamlin, it's it's so, it it is also, I found more academically rigorous, but simultaneously, there's a sense of freedom in the way we approach the work and the way that the teachers interact with us and talk about it. It's like a big pile of, (laughs) a big pile of really intellectual puppies there to like, (laughs) (laughs) there to like romp our way through. Some really well, hard and wonderful and rewarding work. <laughs> well, that sounds fantastic. I'm so glad that you took that on because it really sounds like you just didn't have enough on your plate. So it's it's a it's a <laughs> really good, like, he's really like, good thing that you added. Florida for a week. You go. That's hysterical. So <laughs> so much work. So, much. so but, it is yeah. So, so if it's something that you brought that brought you that much joy, I'm I'm glad that it did. Yeah. <laughs> or or it would have been hell instead. Oh no, I'm part of it's been hell, but for sure. I mean, <laughs> I mean, trying to like trying to focus and write during the pandemic when you're worried about whether your guys are going to eat has been very challenging. Mm, yeah. uh, and you know, also this the the tremendous it, you think that, you know, when when some of my guys were laid off and when we were closed, that I stopped having to work long hours, but it it just did not turn out that way. Like it was still just like you know, a lot of strategizing, a lot of grinding, a lot of working on things, a lot of buying new stuff, you know, there was just always something. And so the wheel never stopped spinning, but yeah. you know, my brain had to spin faster to like accommodate all those new stresses, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, it was, it's been very hard to focus in the last, you know, it was funny because the beginning of my second semester there, it was like, oh man, I'm doing really great. <laughs> And then around June, I was like limping toward the finish line. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, you know, the thing is, though, as hard as it has been, and even when I feel like I'm struggling or stumbling through with the my MFA program, the the work is wonderful. And so it's like, okay, 
maybe I'm not going to be top of my class. I don't care. I'm getting what I need from it. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, I think I'm going to be a published writer. So not quit. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, that's that's <laughs> fantastic. It was that's, a worthy endeavor. That's great. I'm, I'm so glad yeah. to hear that. Thank it, you. It has been fantastic speaking with you here in the Speakeasy. You're welcome to come back anytime. I hope your hot water was hot enough. Um, I, uh, I just ran out. So perfect timing. <laughs> <laughs> I ran out of my Negroni a while ago. So since you are a fan of a well-made Negroni, I would recommend a rum Negroni. Just make sure you have good quality I rum. you. Okay, I see. That's the key. Next on my list is uh, the Mezcal Negroni that uh, that my former guest recommended. And so uh, I'll try that one next. But this was, this was quite good. I'm happy. <laughs> That's great. All right. Thanks again, Amy. Thank you. Take care. Well, that's it for tonight. Many thanks to Amy Rubinate for stopping by and telling me about her path from a cabaret singer to an audiobook narrator and producer. I really appreciated her insights into the industry, and I hope you did too. Don't forget to check out the sponsor for tonight's episode, Squeaky Cheese Productions. They're on the cutting wedge. They're on the web at squeakycheeseproductions.com, and I'm very grateful for their support of the audiobook speakeasy. And be sure to check out Bill Lord's narration of David Stever's Raven Rain, book three in the Johnny Della Rosa thriller series, just released on audio a few weeks ago. As always, you can find the audiobook Speakeasy on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Podbean, and all the usual apps. And you can find me at richvoiceproductions.com, where I've got some samples and links to audiobooks I've narrated, and where I'm also posting episodes of the audiobook Speakeasy. If you're enjoying our Speakeasy chats, please take a few minutes to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're not enjoying them, please find a podcast you do enjoy and leave them a review. If you think this show is educational, entertaining, or valuable simply because it gives you an excuse to sit down and enjoy a cocktail in an otherwise hectic day, I'd really appreciate it if you'd add a buck or two to the tip jar. You can make a per-episode donation by signing up at patreon.com slash audiobookspeakeasy, or you can make a one-time donation by visiting paypal.me slash audiobookspeakeasy. Any financial support is greatly appreciated. Shout out this week to Jennifer Wren Pickens, who came into the Speakeasy for a beer over on Patreon. Thanks for helping me keep the lights on here in the Speakeasy, Jennifer. Until we see you here in the Speakeasy again, I hope you can find some time to enjoy an audiobook. Cheers! Cheers! <laughs>